Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenue History Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 33, the 1952 Bible Conference, Part 2. Last time we talked about the years that led up to the 1952 Bible Conference, even listened to a little snippet of it. We're going to do that again today. Its goal was to bring unity and to avoid controversy, and on the first count, it was, I guess, successful, and on the second count, it was mostly successful, as we're going to find out today. Oh, and also... One of the goals in order to achieve unity and avoid controversy was to forget that the 1919 Bible Conference ever happened. Ever happened. I mean, seriously, you you hold the brochure. If you're a delegate to one of these things, you can leaf through it. I've looked through it. And you'll you'll find in there um, a, a little page. Part of that page is on the 1848 Bible Conferences that were held. And the other part of the page is on the 1952 Bible Conference. It's as if 1919 ever happened. It's all this Twilight Zone stuff if you're an Adventist. And so, anyways, we, we took ourselves right up to the doorstep of the conference last time. In this episode, we're going to step through the door. Okay? Now, I planned on having a ton of audio clips in this. A, a ton of them. I have a bunch of quotes in this episode. But... <laughs> we. When I went to go double check that we actually have these audio files, sometimes we don't because we don't have all the audio files, I think, of the Bible conference. It seems especially that we're missing day one. But also, some of these presenters, as we're going to find out, I guess, they didn't read their papers word for word. They were told to bring an outline or bring some notes and, and just kind of preach them. Some of them preached them a little bit more liberally than others. And so when you compare what was eventually published, their presentation as it was eventually published, compared to the audio that they gave, sometimes the they never actually say the things that are, are printed. You know, either they skip them because they're running out of time or they summarize them in a different way. So we're going off the printed version here because... Um, that, that kind of represents their final thoughts on the topic. And uh, we're going to reference some of the audio comments, especially in something I'm working on uh, that is a new website. And in that new website, we're going to compare on uh, some blog posts uh, some, some of the things that they wrote versus what they actually said. And we can see how it changed from the Bible conference to the time where it ended up in the book, our firm foundation, two volumes. So we're going to have fun with that. We're not, we're not going to leave the Bible conference behind. It looks like we're going to be dealing with the Bible conference in some way, shape, or form for the next few episodes. It's not going to be our subject going forward, but it, it's we're going to be dealing with it. And so we're going to be dealing with it in part because Adventist historians tend not to deal with it. Our good friend George Knight wrote this book, End Time Events. It deals with the explosive 1950s, as he put it. And... uh. He like mentions the 1952 Bible Conference once. There's a whole book on just a decade of, of Adventist history, and he barely mentions the Bible Conference. And it's true that it wasn't a groundbreaking thing. Um, 
you know, it wasn't as explosive as he likes to put it, apparently. It wasn't as explosive as Wheeland and Short, whom we're going to talk about in the near future. It wasn't as explosive as QOD, of course, or um, Andreasen's beef with the church. So, you know, obviously, it's, it's the, we're trying to keep things in moderation here. But it was a really important event, nonetheless. And it was, in its own way, a very influential event in Adventism. We're going to get into that a little bit in this episode. So let's get moving, shall we? And and start at the day before the 1952 Bible Conference, when someone asked General Conference President William Branson whether or not the delegates honestly expect to receive new light at the meeting. And when Branson took the pulpit the next day to welcome the delegates, he answered that question. Quote, I hope we shall. I hope there will be many new rays of light flashing from this platform during this conference. And I believe we should expect to receive new and additional light until the very coming of Christ. I do not believe we have all the truth yet. I think that as soon as any church claims to comes to the place where they feel they know everything there is to know about the plan of redemption, that church has started on the road of retrogression. End quote. This was a classic progressive Adventist answer. You know, we are open in expectation for God to send us new truths. We don't want to claim that we know it all. We're, we're, we're wanting to receive new light. Because we're worried that when we claim to know it all, that's when we're going to start going backwards. That's when we lose our hunger to know the Bible and, and God's will for us. That's when we start to lose momentum and to settle down in a comfortable retirement to live out our last decades or our last centuries. Reminds me of Coach Nick Saban at Alabama. And they were having a good year one year. They have a good year every year these days. <laughs> but um, he was doing a press briefing, and somebody was, was mentioning, I think they were asking him if this was the best team he had ever coached. And he got visibly agitated and said, I wish you guys would stop printing that stuff. It's rat poison. Why did he say that? Because he's worried his guys are going to get, they're going to get the paper. They're going to get on ESPN or something and, and read. This is the best Alabama team ever. And that stuff, that idea is going to go to their head. Right. And then coach Saban's like, then I won't be able to coach them anymore. I won't be able to reach them anymore because they're going to be full of themselves and their own, historic greatness calls it rat poison this is basically this is the avenus idea right I, we don't want to think we've made it we don't want to think we're good enough we don't want to think where we've arrived we want to stay hungry we want to keep fighting we want to keep playing as if we're behind right this is the this is the avenus story of history this is why luther is a hero in in, in adventism but lutheranism is not Luther uncovered a number of truths, but then seemingly stopped. This was, in the Adventist view, the fatal blow that has fallen upon every denomination. While Methodists and Baptists and Lutherans hid behind their creeds, right? They, in, in the Adventist view of things, right? They, 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 they made some advancement. Baptists recovering uh, adult baptism and, and other things. And, and, but then they just stopped, 
So while they were hiding behind their creeds, standing upon them, Adventists were gathered together studying the Bible and learning about the truths for their time. Because the Adventists believed we can't ever get to a part where we're like, you know, a point where we're like, we know it. Let's write up this creed. This summarizes our faith and it can never be changed. That's why Adventists reject creeds. They want to keep moving, want to be able to keep learning. Doesn't mean they abandon what they've already learned, but they just they want to be able to keep adding to it. This is the Avenue story of their place in history. What's unclear here in 1952 is, is how Branson expected that new light to get into the building. You guys, the, the Bible conference was a, 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 it's like a, almost a two-week marathon of presenters reading or summarizing or paraphrasing their papers with programming from 7.45 in the morning until 9 at night. How would you like to be a part of that meeting? Now, to be fair, an hour and 15 minutes of, of each day was set aside for prayer and devotionals led by HMS Richards. But the papers themselves, presumably the source of any new light, were all carefully vetted by GC leaders long beforehand. Each speaker had to submit six copies of his paper to the General Conference Secretary so that the Committee of Council could provide feedback. Now, assuming your paper was approved by the committee, you'd have 55 minutes to present it. And that often, I mean, once you read the printed version of all of these papers, it's very clear they're cutting a, a, a bunch of stuff out because it would take long, too long to present them as they're eventually published. So they've got to save some time somewhere in presenting their ideas. Four hours were devoted to questions, broken into four one-hour segments, which were spread throughout the schedule. And apparently an hour of that time would be taken up by President Branson and Vice President Ruben Figur. So that, that left three hours in case any of the hundreds of delegates had questions about any of the 64 hours worth of presentations they had just heard. Let's just play a little game here. Assume it took five minutes for someone to pick a question out of the box, read it, and, and for a presenter to answer it. Okay, Very, very generous because it would probably take longer than that. You know how religious people are. They'll talk. Uh, present company excluded, of course. But just say five minutes for that process. I mean, there's like basically time for 36 questions. I'm not great at math, but, you know, about that. 64 hours worth of presentations, 36 questions. And oh, by the way, <laughs> no anonymous questions. All the questions had to be signed by the questioner. And also, by the way, people reading the questions are a, a committee basically made up of your bosses. And they will only choose the questions to read, which they think are best. Which is really funny because Nickel, after this is over with, would be like, you know how we know that this conference really brought unity to us? The question period. No dissenting question was found. Okay, I mean, you know, I'm with him. There probably weren't any or at least very many. But what church employee in their right mind who disagrees with somebody up there... <laughs> It's going to write down a question being like, this conference is trash. <laughs> that presentation was wrong. Like, you're going to sign that and hand it to your boss? <laughs> well, of course you're not going to find that. 
we know there was some some controversy there that some people took exception to some of the presentations. But no one in their right mind is going to put that on paper and, and physically hand it to their boss, or maybe they put it in the box, right? And and whatever. The result is the same. Their boss is going to see who sent it in. That ain't going to happen. So these rules, however, they, they reflect the desire to keep the program moving, you know, very efficient use of time, and, and the desire to keep drama out of it. Understandable goals, of course. But if you're also expecting new light to break through during these 14-hour marathon days, it, it really would take something like a miracle. But that's fine because that expectation for new light needed to be tempered by an appreciation for the light Avenus already had. Branson quoted James White, quote, There are those who think more of future truth than of present truth, end quote. So while we expect some new light, this conference was also about celebrating all that Avenus had learned in the past 108 years. There was a sense of anticipation and excitement as Branson wrapped up his address, a sense that something truly historic was happening here. And it was designed to be that way. Six months prior, Branson had written to Leroy Froome, assigning Froome's topic to him and just letting him know, quote, this large Bible conference must be the greatest thing of its kind in the history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Our presentation should be powerful and soul-stirring, and the great Advent message must be made to shine forth in greater luster than ever before. We need Pentecost. End quote. Now, Branson underlined the word Pentecost. You can understand why the speakers might be nervous. The stakes were high. They were The expectations were set high. This must be the greatest thing of its kind in the history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Whoo! The president met with the speakers the night before the conference opened and summed up their feelings before the delegates the next day. Quote, They feel that they have had laid upon them a tremendous responsibility. Brethren, do not condemn us for a word we might say that might not be just exactly the right word. Possibly you might make some mistakes too if you were here in our place and were as frightened as we are. This is the hardest job that I know that has ever been given to preachers, to stand before theologians, brethren from all over the world, Bible teachers from our colleges, evangelists, and men who are mighty in the scriptures, and undertake to set before you anew the great verities of this message. End quote. The hardest job that I know that has ever been given to preachers. You know, I don't know. I think preaching to cannibals might be up there somewhere. But yes, standing in front of theologians <laughs> would be nerve-wracking. And after that, Branson sat down. The delegates no doubt glanced at their 12-page program to see what was coming next. And if they did, right, if the, if the lineup of speakers was the, was the general conference's batting order, then they put their heavy hitters up first. Siegfried Horn and HMS Richards. Now, Siegfried Horn took the stage to talk about the great archaeological discoveries being made. Francis Nichol had written in the review of a few weeks prior that we should all be well-versed in the evidence from archaeology, that this is a, a, a thing that every Avenist needs to be aware of. It's a field 
a subject of study that every evidence needs to be up to date on. And, and Horn answered that call. If George McCready Price had been the public Adventist whom fundamentalists came to respect during their early years, then Horn performed the same function in the world of biblical archaeology. Unlike Price, though, Horn was no amateur. He was a German missionary to Indonesia, and he subsequently spent the war years imprisoned by the Allies. Um, you know, but he weathered it okay because uh, he spent those war years teaching Greek, Hebrew, and the Bible to his fellow inmates. Now, I'm not saying that he had an easy life because, hey, everybody likes their freedom. But if you're going to be a German during World War II, I can think of a lot worse places to be. You know what I mean? When he was released nearly seven years later, he immigrated to the United States did his undergraduate degree in 1947, his master's degree at the seminary the next year, and his PhD from the University of Chicago in 1951. Horn was 44 at the 1952 Bible Conference, a bit of a late bloomer, but I guess when you're in prison for, you know, seven years, you can you can have you have a reason to be starting a little bit later. And if you wanted the sense of, of whether or not this middle-aged dude was going anywhere in life, just read the footnotes of his presentation at the Bible conference. Because on a number of occasions, not the majority, but a few, the source he quotes is himself. Or at least the papers that he was planning to publish. Like, this guy was just being shot out of a cannon. And he, put, he puts in like a footnote, something like, hey, see this paper that I'm working on publishing right now. See this other paper that I'm going to be publishing in the near future. Just hang in there because I'm going to pioneer in this field and then you, this will all make sense to you. <laughs> Horn proceeds to give really a, a masterful crash course on the history of biblical archaeology. If you just needed one, well, I mean, he, he gave multiple presentations on this subject, but it's printed as one kind of long chapter in the book. And if you needed one long chapter to read to kind of get up to date, on the history of biblical archaeology here in the early 1950s, this is it. This is it. This is a great summary of of everything that had been discovered. I shouldn't say everything, but of, of these significant discoveries up until that time. He explained how the Jews in the, in the Persian captivity became rich, uh, how they discovered that there was wealth. What uh, he, he talked about what archaeologists found in King Ahab's palace. He talked about the rediscovery of the Babylonian king Belshazzar. And putting myself there as one of the delegates, I imagine what was so captivating about Horn's presentation was, was not all that this was all new information. I'm sure many of them knew some of this. But that he weaved it together as this compelling story of discovery after discovery after discovery that just seemed to to make every part of ancient Israel come alive. You know, and it, you're starting to see not just this random headline, because whenever you discover something about archaeology in a, in a popular news source, it's always, you know, oh, we found this, I don't know, clay tablet here. We found this piece of pottery here. We found this, you know, something. And it's always isolated. But Horn is weaving it all together to, to show how... This discovery and this discovery and this discovery and this discovery. Like we're on this path as archaeologists uh, and every discovery seems to be verified the biblical account of things. And so, you know, it just fills you, I would imagine, with great hope and excitement that, hey, 
these archaeologists are doing great work. Like every, you know, everything they find seems to verify what I believe. So let's let's encourage them. Let's give them all, all the support that they need. You know, and so it, it tells a story. Oh, okay. So the Jews became rich under Persian rules, or at least some of them did. So that's why many of them chose not to return to the promised land. I mean, of course, we don't know for sure why they didn't. But, but you know, if that's true, then that would make sense, right? Well, why did the Jews occupy such a favored position in the Persian Empire? Well, Horn implies that it was due to the story of Esther. After Esther saved the day, presumably, wait, we're filling in a lot of gaps here with this story, aren't we? But presumably... Showing favor to any Jew you met was a way of honoring your king's favorite wife. It was a way of honoring your king. And if you're a preacher or evangelist sitting there in the 1952 Bible conference, I'm sure you can't, get wait, can't wait to get home and tell people about the implications of these discoveries. Right? I mean, oh, man, I want to use that in a sermon at some point. That's good stuff. And Horn's nearly 100 footnotes gave you places to go looking if you wanted to study this some more. The final footnote was from a source dated five months before the conference. Okay, so Horn was keeping Avenus up to date on biblical archaeology, which many Avenus identified as the field of battle upon which modernism could finally be vanquished, right? Because we're making all these discoveries in archaeology. We, we tried to fight them in geology, but, you know, geology just never, never really took on, took off, I should say, in the Avenus church the same way. Price, of course, was an amateur relying largely on the works of other people. We tried to fight evolution on, on biology, and, and that didn't really go anywhere either. But maybe archaeology is the way to go because, you know, if we can prove that all these events in the Bible are true then uh, through, through archaeology, then, you know, it must be a trustworthy book, right? It's kind of like an end around. It, it had the most promise. It had the most promise. Well, anyways, after Horn was done, H. Miss Richards stood up and started his first devotional. Then it was time for lunch. Delegates returned from lunch to hear D.E. Reebok, Denton E. Reebok, president of the Ellen White Estate, former secretary of the General Conference, present on the role of Ellen White in the Adventist Church. And this was a really nice presentation as well because, you know, he's just going to go back and Take this topic from the beginning. Why do we believe Ellen White is a prophet? What reasons do we have for that? What role does she play in the church? How does Ellen White relate to our salvation? How does Ellen White relate to our doctrine? I mean, he really just does a very thorough job presenting this subject. And again, I imagine, it, well, one thing I guess, if you're not an Adventist, or maybe you don't work for the church and, and are kind of a little bit distant if you're an Adventist, um, one of the things I think people don't realize is how how much Adventists move, not just physically relocate from one location to the other, but even just the Adventist mind. I, I think we encounter ideas. We encounter, um, yeah, like we're just, it's like from meeting to evangelistic meeting to board meeting to, you know, dealing with this, that, or the other, and and what I would imagine a great benefit of the 1952 Bible Conference is, is just to sit people down in the same room and, and just say, let's start on this topic from the beginning until the end and, and give it a good thorough treatment. Because, you know, pastors or conference workers or division or union leaders or whoever are just always 
always moving. And it's hard for, I think, any of them. You know, oftentimes you know, when you read the letters, for instance, the general conference president or the secretary, they're just always putting out fires. Pastors who, I, you know, personally, I live in the same city as a pastor, and I barely, another Adventist pastor, and I hardly ever see him. Like, we're always just kind of moving from A to B to C to D to E. And, and so the Bible conference is really just this time to sit everybody down in the same room and just kind of refill them with ideas. You know, you're not studying this Ellen White thing to deal with some critic who left a church and is now writing against the church. You, you know, you're studying it here at the conference for your own sake. It's kind of like self-care, self-intellectual care that's being forced upon you. There's no running around, you know, it's different when you have when you have 12 days at a meeting versus you know I'm at this the conference called me up or the GC called me up and I got to go the next day and get some stuff done. Right? Like you're not going to pay as much attention in that case cuz you're just kind of looking past it already. But here it's it's almost like an intellectual and spiritual retreat. That's what the 1952 Bible conference was for some of these folks. And it's why when we get to the end of this episode we'll see what people said about it. I mean, it was a highly spiritual moment for them, even though, you know, the presentations were, you know, by design at a, at a seminary level, at least. But anyways, Reebok dealt with Ellen White. No doubt this, this felt good. It felt reassuring for Adventist missionaries and evangelists and pastors and, and administrators to hear this topic dealt with from A to Z in person. And it, what's, what's amusing is that Reebok's boss, Branson, had opened the conference that morning by insisting that only those topics which are important for salvation would be dealt with. But Reebok was clear that accepting Ellen White's prophetic gift was not necessary for salvation. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to quote him here because we don't have um, all of his presentations, and it's just easier this way as a result. Um, he says, quote, There is no salvation in this historical date or that. We should establish clearly in our minds the fact that so far as salvation is concerned, there is but one and only one fundamental doctrine, that I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and Jesus Christ is that Savior if I only believe on him and receive him into my heart by faith. End quote. One fundamental doctrine? Hmm. I, I think this speaks to the constantly confusing ways Adventists have spoken about their own beliefs. Hang on with me for a second, okay? Because on the one hand, as Reebok points out, only faith in Jesus is essential. That's the one fundamental doctrine. Just the, the one fundamental doctrine. On the other hand, if any delegate had a denominational yearbook handy, they could easily flip through it and find out that the church did not have one fundamental belief. They had 22 of them. Adventist said that the belief in Ellen White's prophetic gift was not a requirement to join the church. Yet, if an Adventist gets up and announces that they don't believe Ellen White is a prophet, they probably shouldn't expect to be the conference president. Okay? Reebok said that there's no salvation in this historical date or that. But go around saying 1844 doesn't matter and see what happens to you. Now, there's a way through this, right? I mean, just because one doctrine is, is essential or one doctrine is, you know, the, the most fundamental doctrine, doesn't mean the others aren't fundamental, doesn't mean they don't matter. 
And, and this is a point that Reebok makes next. Quote, Surrounding the one great fundamental doctrine of the Christian church are landmarks, waymarks, blocks, pegs, and pins, which have made us an intelligent Seventh-day Adventist people. These will preserve us as a people only as we clearly understand and live by them, allowing them to mold and fashion our character and determine every detail in the habits of our daily living. Our ultimate aim is to become fit to live forever in God's everlasting kingdom. And to this end, God has placed his prophets in the church to help in preparation for an entrance into heaven. End quote. Okay, so the way that Reebok conceptualizes Adventist theology is we have one, one fundamental doctrine, which is that faith in Christ, and then it is surrounded by what he calls landmarks or waymarks or blocks or pegs and pins. He's, he puts, he's putting all these expressions in quotes because apparently that's what Adventists would call them, these different kind of metaphors for them. And he says it's these, this cloud of witnesses, <laughs> these landmark doctrines that have made us an intelligent Seventh-day Adventist Christian people. I think Reebok means intelligent in the sense of being wise and discerning, not that Adventists have the highest IQ as a result. Okay, And he emphasizes these words, intelligent people. And, you know, yet even this is a little bit confusing because Reebok will go on the quote Ellen White talking about these landmarks or waymark doctrines. And, and, and this is in the context of her talking about preaching. And she's differentiating here theoretical discourses versus practical discourses. Um, meaning practical discourse is just another way of saying sermon. Practical sermons are kind of dealing with life in the here and now, how to forgive, right, how to have patience, how to live faithfully, how to keep Sabbath. Those are practical things. It concerns your daily life and all that. The theoretical stuff is more of, um, let's talk about Daniel chapter 8, and, you know, things that are just kind of, yeah, I guess theoretical is fine. Okay, so this is what she says, quote, Theoretical discourses are essential, that people may see the chain of truth, link by link, uniting in a perfect whole. But, but no discourse should ever be preached without presenting Christ and him crucified as the foundation of the gospel, end quote. The Ellen White statement here really captures a, a kind of tension in Adventist theology, right? There's this one, only one fundamental doctrine, which is faith in God. And yet, uh, Ellen White says that the other doctrines, the, the proclamation of them is essential also. Now, it's not an inherent contradiction here, okay? I, I think what he's trying to do is sketch out how these Adventist beliefs relate to one another. You have that one essential one that's at the center, but then the others are essential too, just not, not as important, right? Not, certainly not without the first one. And so we're trying to we're trying to do something here that's that's rather difficult, I think, as Adventists. And you know, as you can tell, sorting out the the relationship between that one doctrine and the others is not an easy thing to do. Adventists have spent a lot of words trying to sort out that relationship over the decades. Finding the right language becomes a challenge. Ellen White and Denton Reebok are are both trying to get at the same thing in different ways. But this is this is why evangelical leaders, both in the 1950s and even today, think Adventists are being duplicitous. 
You know, they say things like, well, they say they believe in salvation by faith alone, but then they also say that the Sabbath is going to be a test of loyalty to God in the last days, and if you fail that test, you're going to be lost. Well, you can't have it both ways, right? And so they go on. Adventists are dissembling. They're trying to conceal from us what they really believe. Look at look at Reebok say that there's only one fundamental doctrine, and then Ellen White says that all these Adventist doctrines are essential. Is is you know what, what's going on here? Are they trying to just tell us one thing and tell themselves another thing? All right? I mean, if you ever want to drive an evangelical crazy, this is how you do it. <laughs> it's, it it man, just it's driven them crazy trying to sort out whether or not Adventists actually believe that you're saved by by faith alone. Because they see that Adventists say that they believe that. You know, there's plenty of Adventist publications going back an awfully long way saying, yeah, of course we believe that. But then they also see statements like Ellen White where, you know, these theoretical discourses are essential, that people may see the chain of truth link by link, you know. Yeah, of course she says no, no discourse should ever be preached without presenting Christ and him crucified. Okay, sure. That has to be preached, but all the other Adventist doctrine has to be preached too. It's essential. Essential means we can't do without it. So it just drives them crazy trying to sort out what that means. Because if everything is essential, nothing is essential, right? Or if everything is, is important, nothing's important, right? So how, how do you sort that out? And so it drives them crazy. And so this is if you want to drive them crazy, you know, just go down this road with them. I mean, you you can look at it in YouTube. You can find people, you know, prominent evangelical institutions calling us a cult and all sorts of other things because it's hard for them to sort it out. And to be fair, it's hard for Adventists to explain it to. Uh, so this is how you drive them crazy if you want to do that. There's another way to drive them crazy, too. Just tell them you're going to vote for a Democrat if you live in the States. Anyways, uh, the truth is, I think, that Adventists aren't trying to be deceptive. They're, they're trying to communicate something complex and just often have a hard time communicating to Two beliefs. The first belief is that human beings are saved by faith in God alone, period. Adventists really believe this. It's not just on paper, okay? Second, that human beings are part of a great struggle between Jesus and Satan that's been going on in the universe, and that question of that struggle, it it concerns the character of God. Is he who he says he is? Can he do what he says he can do? And so our lives face this struggle. We cannot look away. We cannot avoid it. Our thoughts and actions align us with one side or the other. And whichever side you choose, you resemble either for ruin or for restoration, as Greg Beale memorably put it. And so to Adventists, human beings have a part to play in this drama. Whether or not you smoke matters. Whether or not you keep the Sabbath matters. Whether or not you are a neat, modest person matters because everything you do signals your side in this conflict. You're supporting one side or the other by all of these choices. Now, both of these points, both of these beliefs, I think are easy for Christians to understand when they're separated from each other. You know, if you just walked up and just said, yeah, we're saved by by faith alone. Okay, I got that. And if you walked up and said, hey, your choices matter spiritually, if you choose to go get drunk, you know, any anyone is going to, you know, if you go choose to go get drunk every night of the week, any, any evangelical, for instance, is going to say, yeah, that's spiritually problematic. 
you know, because you're not going to have time to think and pray and, you know, be responsible in your faith, you know, all, you know, all of that stuff. They're going to see that. But you put these two beliefs together, you know, on the one hand, I believe we're saved by faith alone. On the other hand, I, I think, you know, we, we need to be training ourselves to think certain things and act in certain ways so that we can be on the right side of this com cosmic conflict and, and, well, how does that relate to the that you're only saved by faith alone? Now you've got to keep Sabbath, and now you've got to stop smoking. Are you saved by stop smoking? You know what I mean? It gets confusing for them. And, uh, and, and, and Adventists, for their part, have often struggled to communicate how this relationship works clearly. And we're not going to do that here, okay? It's not a theology podcast. But just want you to get the idea here of what's going on. Uh, but, you know, I will say that, we see the same phenomena in, in scriptures when, when Paul both talks about salvation as something that is here and now in Jesus, but also as something that is yet to come. And when we stumble over our words, when we're trying to explain something complicated or something deep, um, we do the same thing with the Trinity, right? It, it, just because it's hard to explain the Trinity doesn't mean the Trinity isn't true. So I think we need to be patient. We need to be charitable when people are trying to explain complex thoughts. As Branson pointed out in his opening address, right? When he said, hey, our presenters may not always use the, the right word or the word that you would have used. So just try to be patient with them and, and charitable with them because they're nervous, he says. Um, you know, Paul seemingly contradicts himself when he talks about salvation. It's, it's here, but it's not yet here. And it's easy. You could read that as a contradiction and walk away, or you could say he's trying to communicate something complex here, something that should be held in, in, in tension. So try to interpret people's efforts in the most charitable way possible, I think. Anyways, Reebok explored this relationship between Ellen White and the Bible and Adventist doctrine over three days. And on the third day, he offered another word from Ellen White where she challenged Christians to grow. This is vintage Ellen White. This is OG Ellen White. She said, quote, we are invited to become learners in the school of Christ. We need to acquire all the knowledge possible. We cannot afford to be ignorant of the things that pertain to our eternal welfare, end quote. So we talk about um, receiving light from God, right? what God has taught me, what God has shown me. Ellen White is also talking here about pursuing light from God. It's not enough just to to kind of sit back and say, well, I know whatever it is that God has taught me. She's saying, no, 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 no. Christians should be a people who also are, are hungering to learn, who are wanting to learn, who want to go further, who are not content to remain where they started. She makes reference in this context, I think it's in Gospel Workers when she made this statement. She makes reference to Peter and, and the others who were fishermen. Maybe they started off as, as unlearned fishermen. That was the impression. That's not Ellen White's words about them. I mean, that's that's the that's the impression that uh, that the religious leaders had. Like, aren't these guys just you know redneck Galileans? But you look at where Peter ended up. You look at the way he used language in his letter, and that guy, that guy grew. Okay, that guy grew wiser. He grew deeper. Right, and so this is Ellen White's point. Like this is this is the path all of us should be on. God, God brings us into into this new light, but then we're expected to keep growing in it, to keep asking questions, to keep studying, to keep learning, all of that stuff. We cannot afford to be ignorant, she said. Reebok adds, "Quote: 
May we pause for a moment and think that through? Is it possible that we as Seventh-day Adventist preachers and teachers have been putting our emphasis in the wrong place? Have we shifted our focus from the great fundamentals to the incidentals and perhaps the non-essentials? Is my salvation still dependent on my faith in Jesus Christ? Or is it dependent on my readiness to give mere intellectual assent to certain designated answers to specific questions regarding a Seventh-day Adventist system of theology? And to certain interpretations of prophecies that were originally designed to help me know how far along I am today in the path leading to the, the everlasting kingdom, end quote. There's a lot to unpack in that quote. We could spend a lot of time talking about it. But he's asking a hard question, right? He says, have we shifted our focus from the great fundamentals? Do you notice here how <laughs> we're not talking about one fundamental doctrine anymore? We're talking about the fundamentals? But it's a, it's, it's a good little preacher move that Reebok employs here. We're shifting from the fundamentals to the incidentals to the non-essentials. That's clever. It's good. And, you know, is my salvation still dependent on my faith in Jesus Christ, or is it dependent on my readiness to give intellectual assent to an Adventist system of theology? That's a, that's a hard-hitting question, isn't it? That's a question Adventists from every generation have been asking themselves. What I love about it is, you know, every young Adventist thinks that they discovered this for themselves. You know, in every Adventist generation, there's a, there's a, as a high schooler, a college student who says to his or her friends, hey, I've got something revolutionary here, guys. What if, what if all this Adventist focus on what we wear and what we eat and Daniel 11 is obscuring our view of Jesus? Whoa, heavy stuff, right? The church leaders don't even know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's hardly a rebellious statement, okay? <laughs> Denton Reebok was the head of the white estate and former General Conference secretary. He's hardly a rebel. And he's saying the same thing a lifetime ago, and he's doing it by quoting a woman who said the same things a lifetime before him. There's this thing in Adventism where... where where in every generation, somebody is asking the question, hey, have we lost sight of Jesus? Have we lost sight of Jesus? Because we believe a lot of stuff. It's possible to lose Jesus in there. And it's, it's good to have that voice rising up above the congregation. Okay, I love how he puts, uh, how he says, you know, is, it, is my salvation dependent on... Um, giving certain designated answers to specific questions about Adventist theology, right? I got to use the right words. Have you ever been to one of those Sabbath school classes for the teacher? <laughs> Where the teacher's always looking for like one specific word and no other answer will do. <laughs> you know, like you're in a class and the teacher's like, you know, how are we saved? You know, or, or you know, and, and you're like, oh, by faith. You know, you think that's the answer, and he's like, no, it's by trusting God. And you're like, okay, like, really? I mean, isn't that close enough? You know, isn't, isn't trust really kind of a, a synonym for faith or, you know, the meaning of faith? And it's like, no, you have to use this one particular phrase that I'm using. It's trusting God, okay? <laughs> it's, I'm just giving you an example. Have you ever had a Sabbath school teacher like that? Where it's like, well, you gotta give, you gotta give the Adventist ease language. That's the only one that counts. Don't don't use a synonym. Don't use a word that's close enough. You know, you gotta use this one word. And you know, I like how Reebok brings this up. He's not talking about Sabbath school in particular here, but 
But, you know, he's like, we got we have an avenous language. And does my salvation depend on me using that language? Does it, does it depend on me giving the standard answers to the standard questions within Adventism? To just giving mere intellectual assent to our doctrines. Hey, Frank, do you, live, do you believe in the sanctuary doctrine? Sure do, Bob. Okay, great. You know, does he have to live it? Does he actually have to understand what that means? No, he says he believes in sanctuary doctrine. Sanctuary doctrine sounds like a very avenous thing, so he must be okay. Reebok is challenging the leaders of the church in that room. Have we been putting our emphasis in the wrong place? Have we shifted our focus away from the great fundamentals to the incidentals, perhaps the non-essentials? Is my salvation still dependent on my faith in Jesus Christ? Not, you know, everyone's going to say yes to that. So don't, just, don't just grab the answer off the top of your head, guys. Do you really mean it? Do you really live that way? He goes on, quote, No, my salvation does not depend upon the 25 million words written by Ellen G. White but upon Jesus Christ to whom they point, who only can save me from my sins and give me an entrance into his everlasting kingdom, end quote. Ellen White would have been clapping in the front row. Perhaps no presentation was more controversial than Edward Heppenstall's presentation on the covenant. Like Siegfried Horn, Heppenstall held a brand new PhD from a prestigious non-Avenist university, the University of Southern California in this case. Heppenstahl was toward the end of his teaching at La Sierra College and was now coming into his own theology. And what I mean by that is, you know, I think if you're going to study theology as a pastor or as an academic or something, you know, you, you, you start out by learning what other people think. You Maybe you read Augustine or you read Jan Andrews or whatever. And at some point, if you're ever going to be good at it, you're ever going to get anywhere, you've got to kind of own it. It's not enough to hold on to Jan Andrews's ideas or Ellen White's ideas or Joseph Bates' idea. At some point, you got to put it in your own words or add to it or subtract from it, you know, and, and kind of make your own contribution, at least in your own mind, in terms of what you believe. And so he's he's doing this now. He's coming to some ideas of the, of the covenant and of the law that are distinctly his, we will say, okay? And he would shortly go on in a few years to go teach at the seminary, and he would do more than any other person to combat the idea of perfectionism in the Adventist church, and he would do it through his students, many of whom would go on to become famous in their own right for infusing his teaching on grace into their work. His students include our friend George Knight, they include Desmond Ford, include Morris Venden, all famous Avenus. George, of course, is still famous. Desmond, infamous. And Morris Venden um, was, was just very influential in his day. Very influential. In 1985, Avenus theologians were asked which Avenus writer was most influential for their own thought. It was a small sample size, okay? Um, only 55 <laughs> Avenus theologians returned the survey. But even with this admittedly high margin of error, Heppenstall stood out at the top. 
33% of these Adventist theologians picked Heppenstall as the most influential writer in their lives. But behind them, sitting at 18% in second place, the, mo the second most influential writer in their lives was Ellen White. <laughs> Ouch. But Heppenstall wasn't fighting perfectionism in 1952. He was studying how the covenants in the Bible related to uh, one another, what that relationship is between old and new, what the relationship is between law and covenants. And if this sounds like the most boring topic on earth, then recall how the, the 1880s were, were it was basically Adventism civil wars. E.J. Wagner and George Ida Butler fought each other over what the law was in the book of Galatians, okay? Recall how Ellen White spent every ounce of political capital she had to keep the ship together. Talking about the law is dangerous territory in Adventism, okay? Well, what did Heppenstall teach about the law? I'm just going to summarize it for you guys. Like I said, this is not a theology podcast, but it's helpful to know these things to understand why it might conceivably be controversial. Heppenstall rejected the idea that there was an old covenant of law and a new covenant of grace which was the common way of explaining it back then, right? The old covenant's about works, you know, the when God gave the law to Moses, it was do this and do that and don't do this. But the new covenant, oh, it's written in your heart. It's all about faith in God, right? He pointed out that, quote, Moses was, it appears, as much enlightened on righteousness by faith and righteousness by works of the law as was Paul, end quote. So right, like Moses and Paul, they were on the same page. They understood this issue. It wasn't that Paul was more enlightened than Moses. Moses understood what righteousness by faith was. And Heppenstall didn't see a covenant with creation, a covenant with Noah, a covenant with Abraham, and so on. He just saw one eternal covenant running through the entire Bible. And within this covenant are various laws, okay? He divides them into two classes. You have ceremonial laws and moral laws. Now, Heppenstall then relitigates the 1888 controversy by saying that the law in Galatians was the ceremonial law, not the moral law. Okay, It was a ceremonial law with its system of sacrifices and all that that was meant to point people to Jesus and was now no longer necessary because Jesus has come. But the moral law continues. Now, why does he say there was one long covenant? Because, you know, when, when very clearly we see uh, at least throughout Christian history, this conception that there's an old covenant and a new covenant. Uh, the Bible even talks about that. Well, for Heppenstall, it was just, there's basically one purpose that God had for mankind. One direction he's wanting to lead all mankind in. And, and that's what the covenant was all about. It's an eternal covenant, and it takes on these different phases, and that the new covenant was basically the ratification of the old covenant. Instead of written on being written on stone, it's being written on your heart, right? It's the same... It's the same covenant, just kind of, you know, modified or whatever, reiterated, and and without the ceremonial law. Okay, so that's how he saw it. And this was this was a I don't know. I mean, it was a clever solution to the old problem of Galatians, I guess. But, <laughs> um, you know, Butler and Wagner probably would have pulled their hair out. What was problematic is that Ellen White had written about two covenants, not one. And I mean, there were some other aspects of his presentation that troubled some church members. But the idea of contradicting LOI, that one stood out. The delegates at the Bible conference were a sharp bunch, and before Heppenstall had concluded, one veteran evangelist was about to stand up and challenge Heppenstall. It was described by an eyewitness as kind of stomping his foot on the ground, just agitated, irritated, wanting to interrupt Heppenstall and tell him what he thought. But he realized, you know, 
Everybody has made this abundantly clear that there is to be no controversy here. None. <laughs> so he just storms out. After the presentation, somebody got up front. Probably This guy probably wasn't the only one. This evangelist from the Southern Union who stormed out. And after the presentation, someone got up and reassured the delegates that all presentations would be edited before being printed the next year. <laughs> someone had dropped the ball here, guys. Church leaders were supposed to vet these papers before they were presented, and they obviously didn't, didn't see anything wrong with Heppenstall before the Bible conference, but owing to the reaction, suddenly they did, right? Suddenly we have to put a lid on things and fix this mess. After the Bible conference, Heppenstall's paper was sent back out to church leaders to figure out how it should be handled as they prepared to print the presentations. Heppenstall, by the way, wouldn't be the only one to come under the editor's knife. There was a lot of editing going on. And church leaders were, you know, they're usually not theologians. And in this case, you could definitely tell because Will Branson, who was in Florida five weeks after the conference, you had the Bible conference, and then as soon as it was done, you had annual council, which is, you know, one of the big meetings the General Conference Committee has each year. So it was just back-to-back -back big meetings. Now Branson's down in Florida, and he wanted to talk to his colleagues about the, quote, considerable unfavorable reaction, end quote, that Heppenstall's talks had engendered. Branson writes, quote, I think his basic idea was probably all right and quite sound, but the way he stated himself brought confusion to many, end quote. This is usually the kind of statement, my friends, where you can tell somebody isn't really, isn't really grasping it. It's kind of like, you know, I mean, it sounded right to me, but, it, you know, it was just the way he, he said it that was, that was off, right? Well, what was Branson's solution? My goodness, this is awesome. <laughs> he says, quote, I suggest that the papers be sent back to Brother Heppenstall with a copy of the current Sabbath school lesson and suggests that he revise his treatise sufficiently to bring it into harmony with the recognized teachings of the church as set forth in these Sabbath school lessons. I am sure he can do this, and by so doing, we will avoid getting the field upset by the introduction of a new theory that might be felt to be heresy, end quote. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, there's probably no moment in human history where... An Adventist theologian has, has ever, <laughs> where you're ever going to correct them by mailing them a copy of the Sabbath School Quarterly. <laughs> Adventist theologians write the Sabbath School Quarterly. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> it's not really an in-depth, you know, academic paper. It's like a, it's like a, you know, 300 word on a page summary of something, you know, the Adventist quarterly is a, is a kind of a, a basic look at a particular subject it's it's not gonna it's not gonna correct an academic paper okay it's just very not gonna happen but i just i love it i mean that's how you can tell i think that that branson's not really a theologian on this he's not he's not interested in you know the conversation isn't whether hebenstall is right or not the question is is whether if we print his presentation the way it was presented, is that going to upset people in the field? Well, they might consider it heresy, and that's going to create trouble for church leaders, right? We don't want drama. And so, you know, let's just send them the Sabbath school quarterly and just tell them to get in line with this. It wasn't about persuading Heppenstall. You know, hey, the quarterly has better arguments than you do. You should listen to it. It's just, you know, here's the standard. Rework your presentation to meet it. 
Now, Branson Secretary Roger Altman was less drastic. He, he thought a simple footnote worked, you know, written together with Heppenstall would suffice to explain that Heppenstall and Ellen White were, were, not, were not polar opposites here. They, they could be seen to be on the same page. Uh, Altman wrote, quote, I think there is no essential conflict, but there is a need of clarification, end quote. Now, from Altman, we understand a little bit more about why this was uh, a significant issue. It wasn't just that Heppenstall was contradicting Ellen White. For Altman, the, what Heppenstall said was really helpful to him. He says, quote, I still feel that the Heppenstall presentation is sound and timely. I have never liked the coldly mechanical way in which the two covenants have been drawn up by some of our teachers with certain specifications applying to one and other characteristics assigned to the other, for it seems to me that this brings in too great a separation and presents the idea that the plan of God for Israel was totally different from the plan of God for those who live under the Christian dispensation, end quote. Heppenstall's presentation, it would be edited down and printed alongside the rest, okay, and um, when my new Adventist History Network website launches soon, I, I plan on writing a few blog posts comparing Heppenstahl's oral presentation at the Bible conference with what got printed later. And we're going to see, you know, how much of it was changed, what was changed, what was cut out. Um, you know, it, it, maybe it's not really a big deal. Maybe he just kind of dropped a quote or dropped a statement or modified it. Or maybe a lot got changed. I don't know, but we're going to find out together on that, on that website. But we're going to leave Heppenstahl there for now. I just, I, I, I like how Altman, I like how Altman kind of saw the value in Heppenstahl's presentation as, as helpful. And he, right, he summarizes the traditional way Adventists have been teaching this, at least during his lifetime, as, right, you have these two different covenants and some have these characteristics. It's about works, it's about law, it's about whatever. And then the other covenant is about grace and it's about love and it's about forgiveness. And you know, and for Altman, it's like, well, do we have two separate gods? One is the god of law, and and the other is the god of grace, right? He's, he's like, I think we made too much of a distinction between the the covenants. Now, Altman does fault Heppenstahl. I should add before we move on, he does fault Heppenstahl, saying, you know, I think he just he was trying so hard to prove that there's only one overarching covenant that he papered over the differences between the Old and New Testaments. And, and so he's, you know, it was an issue. That's why Altman didn't see this as a really big deal. It was, it was just an, he just need, he just went a little too far in the other direction trying to prove his point, which, you know, it happens from time to time. There are, there were some other surprises like Heppenstall there. W.E. Reed, who had been studying Lewis Weir's teaching about Armageddon, showed up in support of Weir, although not by name. Weir, if you recall from the last episode, had stirred up some controversy in Australia over his teaching about the last days, and Reed was looking into it. Weir believed that Uriah Smith had been wrong to believe that Armageddon described a literal battle in a literal place and wrote about it throughout the 1940s. Reed took the same position at the Bible conference, and it has worked its way into beginning the view that, that you know, is held by most Adventists today, I would say. And this is how change often comes, isn't it? You know, sometimes there's a big meeting and you know, issues are debated and, and we pick one side or the other to go with from here on out. And sometimes they just slip in. Sometimes it's just some preacher in Australia and it gets the attention of general conference and somebody there agrees with it too and proclaims it. And when they proclaim it, it sounds like this is the natural, traditional 
Avenist teaching. Now, of course, back then, Reed's presentation stirred some waters as well, and there was some talk in that in those days about how do we reconcile these two different views of, of Armageddon. But it didn't take long, right, before Reed's view, before Weir's view became kind of the standard Avenist view. And, you know, I would say if you would ask most Avenists today, is Armageddon the literal battle? They'd say no. And they would think that that was the position held by all Avenist pioneers from the very beginning and not realize that it's something that came up a lot later. Another surprise uh, was the presence of John C. Trevor, who worked for the National Council of Churches. He was invited to speak about this brand new revised standard version, which was set to be published two weeks after the end of the Bible conference. But we're going to talk about the RSV in our October bonus episode because, you know, suffice it to say... The Avenist controversy over Bible translations is really interesting. I love talking about it. It's fun. But, it, you know, devoting an entire regular episode to it does not, does not really push our story forward at all. Um, so we're going to do that in the October bonus episode. And um, Trevor's presentation about the RSV never made it into the published book of these presentations, nor would we probably expect it to, although it would have been nice. It would have been nice. So we'll talk about the RSV in our October bonus episode, okay? Okay, well, the Bible conference ended on a high note. There was a, a, a communion service where, in the Avenue style, delegates washed each other's feet, no doubt. On the final Sabbath, James McElhaney delivered the sermon, saying that the foundation of our church is secure. Testimonies were shared as delegates came to the mic. And this is the, the part of it, I think, that would be that's, that's most really moving to me. Robert Whitsett of the General Conference said, quote, This has truly been one of the greatest meetings in the history of our church, end quote. I think that should be the focus of a new church marketing campaign. Join the Avenist Church. We have the greatest meetings. All of our meetings are the best meetings that you will ever attend. Zoom, in person, we have the best meetings, guys. Uh, anyways. The, the, the appreciation for these meetings was real. No doubt being said, you know, Robert Woodsett saying that it was the the greatest, one of the greatest meetings in the history of the church really pleased Branson, right? Because that was his goal from the beginning. We must have the best meeting ever. Uh, but it, it wasn't just, it wasn't just trying to impress the boss by heading to the mic. It, you really get the impression when you read these testimonies that the appreciation for what they had just experienced was real. It was soul-filling. One review employee testified like they had just experienced a revival. They said, quote, you know, we Adventist preachers are prone to say, see what the world is coming to. But I think, brethren, we ought to be able to say, see what has come to the world. See what has come to us through Christ. I praise his holy name for a new sense of his pardoning love and his sweet presence, end quote. I think that's a beautiful thing to say. You know, we often, just to kind of put it in different words, he's saying, we often say, oh, look how terrible the world is. It's so bad. Everything is terrible in this world. It's just, you know, junk. But he's flipping that script, this this gentleman, and saying, maybe we should start saying, see, see how God is working in the world. See what has come to us through Christ. You know, in, instead of looking at the world as this kind of trash heap of misery and, and suffering, you know, look at it and say, look what God is doing here. So it kind of, it really flipped the perspective for this review employee. You know, he says, I, I've, I, 
he has a new sense of his pardoning love and sweet presence. That's not something you would expect from a Bible conference where all these papers are being presented. And, and so I don't want to leave this episode without communicating to you that this was a spiritual moment for these delegates. It wasn't just an intellectual thing. It was a spiritual thing. Did some not enjoy it? Maybe they didn't get anything out of it spiritually? I don't know. I mean, like I said, I doubt anyone would have been brave enough to tell the GC that it was a waste of their time. But when you read these testimonies, you can't help but feel that this feeling of, of appreciation, of being moved spiritually, was very widespread. One person wrote following the conference that the whole experience was full of spiritual power and would never be forgotten. And this person went on, quote, when the brethren finally return to their fields, what will they bring to their churches and to the world? This is the great unanswered question of the conference. The meetings were a great success. Everyone has agreed upon that. But what will the results be? Will our ministers restudy the great truths of inspiration for themselves? Will they urge our people to do the same? What message will come from this conference to our people around the circle of the earth to hasten the preparation for the climatic event of the ages and the finishing of the work? What will the answer be? It depends upon the delegates who have the responsibility of taking home with them the radiant glory of spiritual revival and power that attended this historic conference. End quote. I don't think Branson could have said it any better than that. And in that statement, we get the, the plan for this conference. You know, Branson mentions at one point that somebody had said, well, I wish you know, more people were here. I wish everybody could be here. And Branson said, yeah, it's impossible to bring everybody to this conference, but what we can do is we can bring our leaders here, our thought leaders at the university, at the conference, at the union, you know, at the review, the publishing houses. We can bring our leaders here. We can inspire them and charge them up, and then we can send them out. And then when that person gets back to their conference, they can call a meeting of their, of their people there and charge them up and inspire them and let them know what they've learned, right? So this was Branson's model here. We're just going to get a, I mean, it's not a small group of people, 500 and something people, but we're going to get a relatively small group of people and, and revive them. And then you guys all go out and revive others. And this is how we're going to bring unity and revival to a global denomination. That was the plan. That was the plan. And you see here, the, the, this person was writing about the, the goal is that the ministers would, and, the, and the members would restudy the great truths of inspiration for themselves. And what's behind that, I think, is something very profound. And that is, it's not enough to know something. Sometimes there's benefit in just restudying it. Sometimes there's benefit in just restudying it. So you can remember again the reasons why you believed it in the first place. That periodically, for our own spiritual good, we should go back with, with one's Bible and just say, okay, I know I believe this, but I've kind of forgotten why exactly, so I'm going to just start over. And I'm going to go back through the Bible, and I'm going to study all of the texts on this topic and, and just kind of rebuild that foundation. Because sometimes, you know, like anything else in life, those foundations erode, don't they? And so what we have here is an avenue value of don't, you don't just study and believe something. You don't just study in order to believe something once. You've got to keep going back and inspecting the foundations and rebuilding, going back over that path again that first led you to where you are. Make that pilgrimage again to 
to revive yourself, to, to uh, you know, get out the paddles, rub them together, put them on your chest and hit the button, you know, like bring yourself back to life because we erode over time. We get tired over time. Things get foggy over time. And they become slogans over time where it's, oh, yeah, I believe that. I believe that. But then you press that person a little bit. Why do you believe that? Have you considered this? And then they get, they, you know, they're done. They can't carry on the conversation anymore because it's not a, it's not a deeply held belief anymore because they've forgotten all the reasons as to why they believe it. Or the, or the reasons are just kind of memories now. Well, there was that one verse that says this, right? That's why I believe this, right? So the call for revival in the church, that what the, what the 1952 Bible Conference was trying to affect is go back and study again for yourselves. We're going to give Branson the final word here. And now may God bless every one of you who have been here with us, accompany you as you go back to your fields, and give you great success in leading the forces in the field to higher and nobler achievements, attainments first, and also achievements in the work of God. The end is near, brethren. Our pilgrimage in this world is soon to end. May God keep us faithful until it is all over, is my prayer. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.